welcome to Monarch Cast. Uh, today we're talking Queen Victoria. Yeah. Parts of her. There's parts of her, cover. like her arm and her leg. Yes, just her <laughs> arm and her leg. I'm Claire. Yeah. I'm Allie. And yes, Claire's correct. We are talking about the Queen Victoria today, but we're going to talk about a very specific aspect of her reign because she ruled for a really long time. So we're, we're not going to cover all of that. You're welcome. <laughs> Just the interesting bits. Well, you know what? Honestly, no. I actually, in the course of researching this, there's like three more angles that I think I would find really interesting to discuss about her. So maybe at a much later date we could do that. But yeah, a very interesting bit, I would say. Well, so just to give everybody some context, if you're just joining us, this is part of the series we've been doing on the women who wear the crown or the women who want to wear the crown. And today we're going to see what happens when a woman wears the crown. And what is it? At least eight people thought maybe that was a bad idea. Yeah, although that's a really, you know what, that's like not actually really correct, but that's something that you could take away from it. At least eight eight times somebody threatened the person of the queen. Yes, very interesting. Yeah. So, before, But it's true that you are right that we are talking about a queen that did not have to prove her ability to be queen, which yes. is kind of refreshing to read about, I must say. Yeah. We'd gotten to this point in history, everybody kind of accepted that it was okay. Yeah, and I think it helped that by the time she came to the throne, the monarchy was firmly on its way to being a full constitutional monarchy and her actual powers were extremely limited. But a lot of the concern about her rule actually stemmed from the fact that she came to the throne when she was 18 and so she was obviously young and sheltered growing up by her mother. So, you know, she had to gain the experience. But that's not really what we're talking about, but we will get into it. And first, though, you said you had a little bit of gossip. Yes. Um, I don't really have any oops from last time. So, um, and I don't even really have that much gossip, but also continuing with a theme, we've been talking about the British press and how they're just raking Meghan Markle over the coals. Um, And so as I did think, I think I said this in one of our episodes, we did see, as expected, everyone together on Christmas morning, walking to church with the Queen, all four of them, William, Kate, Meghan, Harry, in a line. Um, At least William, not William, um, Kate and Meghan seem to be getting along very, very well. Of course, again, this is one of those things, even if any of this was true behind the scenes, you wouldn't see anything to the contrary. Although I do think that their interactions, at least to the casual observer, seemed very natural and unforced and... um, you know, I think this just comes back down to it that a lot of this is probably fabricated. Um, interestingly, the headlines that followed were that the Queen and Charles had forced them to get along. So, of course, the media is always going to spin their narrative. But, you know, as as we expected, we did see a united front on Christmas Day. So um, that's all I really have to add there. I just think it's it's kind of interesting because the media has their playbook. The royals certainly have their playbook. Um, And it's kind of interesting to see everybody follow the map. And I also wanted to bring up this interesting tidbit that I gleaned in the coverage in the last couple weeks where, you know, a few members of the press have accused other members of the press of a racist take on this. And it's true that some of the stories they obviously are recycling from the time of when Kate ascended. So you could make the argument that everybody's getting treated equally terribly. But... The, the fact that so many members of the British press were so vehement in like denying this and then the headlines turn around and, and even the stories seem obviously problematic is just astounding to me that there seems to be an unwillingness on the part of some of the press and a like a rift occurring between some of the members of the press over the nature of the coverage. But well, yeah, and then they turned around. The headlines are just different enough where it's Two days like, after Christmas okay. and then the story was that she was passing out marijuana at her wedding so you know (laughs) yes and the implication being what a druggie like she was you know and it's like that's the thing that it's not it's the kind of thing where they can have plausible deniability but you read the headlines and the stories and it's quite obvious there's a different angle and even if there isn't I think it's you know it's one thing to attack Kate using these stories and then if you attack Megan it's 
you know, it's also kind of that idea of going back and saying, maybe you should take a little bit of a step back and be a little extra sensitive and make sure because, you know, women of color have it way worse than white women. And so maybe maybe we shouldn't treat her the same. It's not maybe she shouldn't be fair game. I don't know. It's just kind of when you add it with all their history of colonialism and classicism and, you know, outright racism, I think it's kind of gross. You're right. Maybe the argument shouldn't be, look, we did the exact same to Kate. Maybe the argument should be, let's consider all the ways this could be construed as responsible journalists, which they are not because they're just trading in gossip. No, it's trading in gossip and it sells papers. So anyway, um, I just thought that was really interesting. And I did appreciate the united front at Christmas, uh, despite all the headlines that Megan was going to force Harry to skip the Boxing Day shoot. And what do you know? He went out and shot birds with everyone else. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, speaking of... I have no segue. I was going to... Speaking of colonialism, one, like, let's speaking talk of, about the Empress. Yeah. Well, okay. That's a great one, actually. <laughs> speaking of the Commonwealth and the former empire that was uh, victorious... Let's move on. So as Claire mentioned, we are going to talk today about the aspect of Victoria's long reign, um, a little over 63 years, in fact, and the fact that during her reign, eight people made attempts on her. I, you know, I don't want to say attempts on her life because as we'll discuss, it's very clear in most cases, they were not actually trying to harm her. It was more about them than her. But there were eight times during her reign where someone either threatened her or almost injured her or did injure her or worse. So it's, you know, it's fascinating to me that as someone whose reign is generally considered as successful, that this was going on. Although you could also argue that, okay, she was attempted, an attempt was made on her life, you know, eight times during an almost 64 year reign that averages out to once every eight years. Maybe that's not that bad. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> no, actually, that's that's not a good uh, way to look at it, because actually it it's very much has to do with the time in which she reigned, and I think that that's a really interesting part of it. So I'm going to stop babbling about the circumstances and get into it. I do first want to do a quick bio of Queen Victoria, though, because we haven't talked about her really before. We talked about her briefly as the grandmother of Europe during our um, episode when we talked about the Windsors changing their name during World War One, But we haven't really talked about her, the woman. And unfortunately, we're not really going to delve too much into her upbringing. I think it's been covered so much in popular culture and other podcasts. And, you know, just go watch some BBC shows or something, right? Uh, side note, I have to plug that show. Victoria. Oh, you do? Okay. It's so good. And I think the third season is coming I've watched the first two seasons. I think they do a really good job of covering, I think they've probably covered a lot of what we'll talk about here. The first two seasons, I think it's really only in the early part of her reign and her marriage to Albert. But I think they do a really good job of dramatizing everything while keeping it entertaining, but also, from what I can tell, somewhat historically accurate. And it just has a lot of actors that I really like. So if anybody out there enjoys the crown or maybe you liked rain i don't know i think you should check out victoria that's on pbs yes in the u.s it airs on masterpiece okay i've only ever seen the movie that fergie produced (laughs) so uh you know that was complimentary (laughs) which one was that that was the one with emily blunt was oh i loved that movie it was really good but i i mean i'm sure it was more complimentary than it could have been. I think, yeah, I think they do a good job on the show of portraying her as um, kind of spoiled, like uh, she is immature. She made girl. some mistakes during her reign that she definitely yeah. could have avoided. You know, maybe maybe that's not fair. Maybe she couldn't have because of general public sentiment. But we'll cover some of that a little bit. So I don't want to get too into that. But Uh, Let's jump into her very quick bio. I promise it's quick. So Alexandrina Victoria was born May 24th, 1819, 
and she did rule England for a little over 63 years from June 1837 until her death on January 22nd, 1901. And at the time of her death, she was both England's oldest monarch and its most long reigning. That I believe both titles have since been relinquished to Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> her great, great granddaughter. But up until a couple years ago, she was the reigning title holder. Interestingly, she was, you know, one of those uh, monarchs who was never considered a sure bet to rule. So she was the daughter of the fourth son of King George III. But due to her uncle's lack of children, she found herself on the throne at the age of 18. And now this is something, correct me if I'm wrong, but... From the time she was relatively young, they knew right. it, it was, was very likely that she was going to inherit. Yes, and when I say it wasn't a sure bet, I mean nobody up until you know the early years of her life would have thought that the fourth son of King George the third would be providing the heir to the throne but her uncles had a series of misfortunes with children dying or did just you, did you say King George the third? Yes, that was her grandfather. Oh, wow. So we're not that far removed from the American Revolution. No, and actually, if you are just new to the show and you want to kind of find out more of the history of how George III came to the throne, Victoria is actually the a member of the Hanover dynasty. Oh, that's right. Um, founded by George I. Um, and she is actually, in fact, the last Hanoverian monarch. Technically speaking. Well... In name. And the reason for this, of course, is because she married her first cousin, Prince Albert of Saxe Coburg and Gotha, and the family took his name. They had nine children together, so whatever succession crisis brought her to the throne was not a problem <laughs> for them. They had nine options to choose from. She did, however, outlive a few of her children, sadly, um, but she very easily produced an heir. Um, she was, as I mentioned, the last monarch of the House of Hanover, and at least in Britain, they still remained uh, ruling in Germany for a little while. Um, in fact, her grandson was the Kaiser Wilhelm, who was ruling during World War One. Mm. Um, but again, in Britain, she's the last one because her son Edward the Seventh took the house name of Saxe Coburg and Gotha of his father. Although we have talked before about how and why that changed to Windsor. So really, it's the same family. It's just they've changed their name a couple times. Gotcha. So her reign, because it was so long, is known as the Victorian era. And it was a time of industrial, cultural, political, scientific, and military change. So changes across the board. Um, as well as also marked by a great expansion in the British Empire. In fact, in 1876, she was also proclaimed Empress of India. However... As great as a time this was for Britain, it was less prosperous for others. Um, it included the Irish potato famine of 1845 to 49. And also in England itself, after Albert's death in 1861, Victoria actually entered a deep mourning and period of seclusion where she avoided public appearances, rarely residing in London. And this seclusion actually resulted in an opening for Republicanism supporters and Irish sympathizers to grow, as well as also coinciding with the global rise of terrorism, anarchy movements, and attacks on Europe's royals. Hmm. So I want to mention all of that because not to lay the blame at her feet, but she happened to rule during a time of great change, but also unrest. And as we said before, because of this, had eight attempts on her life or person during her reign. But she lived. <laughs> she actually lived to be a very old woman. So obviously none of these were successful. And we'll talk a little bit as to why. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the nature of the attacks. So let's jump right in because this is going to be a long one, folks. Get ready. I'm ready. Claire, any questions before we start? You ready? No, I'm good. I'm ready. Okay. So the first attempt. So I'm calling each one its own sort of subset of context in her reign. So the first attempt actually restores the queen's popularity. So the first one happened fairly early in her reign, um, actually three years into her reign in 1840. Um, Victoria was married. She was three months pregnant, but she had also suffered the first couple scandals of her short rule. So a lot of this came to a head in 1839 
So the first scandal is in 1839, one of her mother's ladies-in-waiting was falsely accused of an out-of-wedlock pregnancy by her mother's advisor, Sir John Conroy. Um, to be clear, he did not accuse her of the pregnancy. She was accused to be pregnant by him. Oh, I thought, um, uh, yeah, because Victoria is the one that I think so, started it. Well, she definitely believed the rumors and was later accused of helping to spread them because she did not like Conroy. A lot of that has to do with his involvement in her raising um, by her mother. But Conroy and the lady's family felt very attacked by this and they organized a press campaign calling out Victoria's aiding of the false rumors. And then the lady in question, uh, Flora Hastings, actually died that July of an abdominal tumor, which was the cause of the suspicion all along. I mean, this poor woman just had like liver cancer and was accused of being pregnant. Oh my God. And actually had to... Yeah, and she actually had to undergo a lot of very humiliating examinations by doctors to disprove the rumors. So all in all, not a good look for the young queen. Um, she was, I think, you know, influenced by her pure hatred of Conroy, but it really wasn't queenly behavior. Was he, um, this may just be the shows that I've watched, but was he suspected of being her mother's lover? Did I just was. make that up? No, you didn't make that okay. up. He was. He was suspected I'm of not, it or he was? I'm not clear if he actually was, but that was a suspicion. Okay. For all you guys out there who want the gossip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we didn't talk at all about Victoria's upbringing in the Kensington system, but she had good reason to hate this man. I think we could so, just sum it up as super strict. Super strict, super sheltered, and there's a reason when she turned 18, and especially when she became queen, she put her mother as far away in Buckingham Palace as she could. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, they eventually reconciled, but it was a shaky start. So um, the second scandal, Victoria was very close to her first prime minister, who was a Whig. I mean, this is Lord Melbourne. And I'm, well, Mel- Melbourne, I don't know how to pronounce this. I, I only pronounce this the Australian way, but Melbourne, we should say. I think that's the How English do they pronounce way. it on the show? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But he was replaced in 1839 by a Tory prime minister, Sir Robert Peel. So at the time, it was customary that the new prime minister or really any prime minister has a hand in deciding who the monarch's attendants are. So when he came into office, he assumed that he would replace the queen's ladies in waiting with the wives of Tories, Okay, as was customary. Can we just back up for a second? That is so weird to me because wouldn't she I think want it's a them holdover. to be but wouldn't she want them to be like her friends or something and now it's like yeah, every they, time there's a change in government she gets a change in people that are like dressing her in the morning yeah so it's this holdover from this idea that the government has a say in the day-to-day running of the monarchy I'm pretty sure in any case Victoria refused Um, I think she also agreed that she shouldn't have to change her ladies-in-waiting, especially for a prime minister that she did not like. And so Peel resigned, and Melbourne actually returned to office. And I'm not clear on the politics of why this was possible, but that is what happened. And Victoria's closeness to her prime minister was remarked upon, and she was actually jeered in public as Mrs. Melbourne. Um, Mrs. So-and-so was actually a favorite insult that they levied to her throughout the years. She was close to a Scottish attendant later in her life and was derided as Mrs. Brown as well. Isn't that so, a movie? Yes, I think it's about that, actually. Yeah, really it's sexist no matter what. I mean, assuming that a woman is so beholden to a man that she's having to deal with in a capacity as monarch that it, you know, nobody's ever calling the king Mr. So-and-so. Yeah, right? although so. I'm not I'm not excusing this, but I do think Victoria certainly oh she 100 percent was influenced by powerful men and was way more political than would be deemed appropriate for a monarch okay for sure yeah and that in fact didn't really come to light until after she died and they released her journals and people were like whoa (laughs) (laughs) she's like uh what people accuse charles of being interesting yeah Um, But anyway, after both of these crises, after the bedchamber crisis and the Hastings affair, her reputation really took a hit. However, this all changed in 1840 when an 18-year-old named Edward Oxford attempted to assassinate the queen while she was out taking a ride in her carriage with Albert. Um, And that might seem strange to say, but I mean, she really played this to her advantage. So Oxford 
stood across from the carriage with two pistols and he fired one at the carriage and it kind of took everybody a minute to realize what's happening. I mean, nobody's expecting a gun to go off near the queen's carriage. You might argue they're a little bit naive, but assassination hasn't really been a problem. Um, so the queen actually thought somebody was shooting birds in the park and Albert was like kind of amused at the whole thing. Like Oxford had this very theatrical pose that he had adopted and practiced and, you know, Albert was like, man, what you doing? Like, this is really funny. Um, so the carriage stops actually. And then Oxford fires his second pistol and then everybody's really freaking out because they realize, oh no, this is at us. I wonder Um, if he could have actually shot her because from what I know of guns back then, you had to be well, relatively close range, right? You did, but also we'll talk about why he probably couldn't have shot her. So, but anyway, when the commotion died down, the queen actually gave the order to continue their ride as if nothing had happened. And actually, I believe she was on the way to visit her mother. So she just kind of went about her day. And this was actually a masterstroke of PR on her part, um, because as they continued their ride and then went out for the next few days as usual, they signaled absolute trust between the monarch and her subjects. So their private reactions to the shooting might have been a bit more emotional, and some accounts say that when they got back to the palace, Victoria broke down into tears. But publicly... They enjoyed several days of national thanksgiving for the preservation of the monarchy. They went about, Victoria was adamant that she was not going to let one man ruin the trust that she had in her people. And essentially all bad feeling after the two scandals evaporated. Like Oxford had essentially ushered in the Victorian age with his two pistols. Wow, isn't that handy? It really was. And so Victoria also played it very smartly. But as to your question about whether he could have shot her, it was assumed that the pistols were loaded, but he later claimed that they were not and bullets were never found. So it's more likely that he just shot at her with powder. Oh, okay. Right. Um, The Queen and Albert, Albert, however, were convinced that they were loaded. It's not really based on any evidence other than like they were just sure of it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I could see how that would be hard to convince them otherwise. Yeah, And Albert shows a pattern throughout all of these of assuming that it's all about him. (laughs) So um, they had a tendency to just assume the worst of their assailants on almost no evidence. Except for that um, they're pointing a gun at them. Right, exactly, (laughs) exactly. So it was pretty clear that the pistols weren't loaded and at least they could never find evidence for that. Um, But Oxford's motive was a bit harder to pin down. So... He tried to claim to be part of a conspiracy called Young England, but all evidence was pointing to him being the sole member of the movement. Like, all the papers were in his hand. All the signatures of so-called other members were also in his hand. So it was pretty clear it was made up. However, rumors circulated that he was aided by the King of Hanover, who would have been one of um, Victoria's close relatives, or in trying to destroy the British Constitution, or of being a member of the Chartist movement, which was a group of working class people who um, had erupted into riots the previous year. However, Victoria didn't believe any of the conspiracy theories because that would mean losing trust in her people. So she was very steadfast that he was acting alone. She just refused to believe the alternative. And actually, it was pretty evident to most people that Oxford was likely insane. Although the royals were convinced that he had been quiet and composed and not at all mad, but insanity was from the start part of the trial. He also definitely loved the spotlight that his arrest and trial brought him, so it's likely that part of his motive was just fame. Okay. Yeah. So this is what I mean when a lot of these assailants suffer from the same idea of fame and fortune and they're not so much trying to kill the queen because they don't like her, but because it's an easy path to whatever they're seeking. Hmm. However, Oxford, unfortunately, whether he was going after fame or what, was ultimately tried for high treason and was ultimately acquitted of both firing loaded pistols and acquitted by reason of insanity. So he got assigned this label of insane, whether he wanted it or not or whether he deserved it or not. And he was found guilty of discharging his pistols and thus disturbing the queen's peace. And so compounded with the insanity verdict, this was enough for the government to detain him and essentially lock him up for life. He was committed to the most famous insane asylum in Britain at the time, 
Bethlehem, or better known as Bedlam. Oh. Uh, yeah. Um, but from the moment he arrived there, the doctors considered him sane, and he was a model inmate. In 1867, he successfully appealed for release on the condition that he remove himself to one of Her Majesty's colonies and never return to England. Did he go to so Australia? he actually died. <laughs> yes, he actually died in Melbourne, Australia in 1900. That's where they sent all the criminals. Pretty much almost all of her attackers maybe with a couple of exceptions, wound up in Australia. So, yeah. So that's the first attempt on her life, and it's a bit disconcerting for everyone. You know, nobody really thought this was a possibility. And a thread that we'll see throughout is this idea of insanity because people thought if you're going to fire a weapon at the queen, then you must be insane. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, probably. So now let's talk about the second and third attempts on her life. One man has a try, and he actually inspires a copycat. So these happen very close together. So the second attempt happens two years after Oxford first aims at the Queen. Um, In 1842, a man named John Francis did the same. And I say man, but a defining feature of a lot of her attackers is that they were very young, uh, ranging from like 17 to early Hmm. 20s. By 1842, the Queen has this regular Sunday schedule of a carriage ride from Buckingham Palace to go to church at the Chapel Royal at St. James Palace. I mean, this is maybe a half mile away, but she takes the carriage every time. Um, So her pattern is pretty predictable at this point. She's going out in an open-air carriage. So on one such Sunday, May 29th of 1842, she's again out riding in a carriage when a witness sees John Francis aim a pistol at her, but he doesn't fire. So this witness is a little bit confused as to what's going on, and so John Francis just kind of runs away. But the witness notifies political authorities. Interestingly, not the police, but the idea that that would just raise too much mayhem in the aftermath and alert John Francis to the fact that they were onto him. So they thought by notifying political authorities, they could kind of keep it quiet. Um, However, that was unnecessary because Victoria already knew this had happened because Albert had also witnessed the incident. And in fact, he assumed that he had been the target. With no evidence, really, just other than he saw a pistol pointing at him and thought it must be Not his wife, the queen. (laughs) So the following day, Victoria rides the same route, faster and with more escort, although without her ladies-in-waiting. She's willing to endanger the male members of her household, but not the women. Um, And she's hoping to draw Francis out. And also, besides that, she feels this obligation that her public expects her to ride out among them, and she's not going to be forced into seclusion from them. So she's brave, but also she feels like she has no choice to go out. But the plan works. So despite the fact that there are many plainclothes policemen about now, because the police have been alerted by this point, um, one policeman had spotted Francis, but unfortunately he opts for ceremony over security. And when the queen rides by, he chooses to stand and salute her. Oh boy! (laughs) And Francis takes this opportunity and shoots at the queen. Um, The officer obviously realizes what happens and immediately seizes Francis, but Francis is adamant that there's no bullet in his pistol, and therefore he could not have actually harmed the queen. And interestingly, what's happening is, you know, this is the second incidence where someone has stood in a park and aimed a bullet at the queen, and a consensus is starting to build that maybe the law is encouraging crime instead of deterring it because Oxford has been locked up for a couple years in Bethlehem at this point and people have this idea that he's getting cushy treatment in reward for shooting at the queen. Well, he's probably getting more meals than he would have gotten. Well, yes, but as a sane man in an insane asylum, he's not living his best life. True. So... The public perception, though, does not follow that. However, Francis is still tried and convicted of high treason because at this point, trying to kill the queen, high treason. However, on July 1st, his sentence is commuted from death to transportation for life, also to Australia, at least at this point, Port Arthur, Tasmania. Um, Victoria is happy about this because she's since come to the conclusion, again, based on almost no evidence, that his pistol isn't loaded. Like, she just has a feeling he didn't mean to kill her. But she's also of the opinion, like everyone else, that the law needs to be changed and she needs to have more security afforded to her because the death penalty, she feels, is excessive to these crimes since it's 
not clear that either of these men really meant to kill her. Um, And transportation to somewhere else is obviously not enough of a deterrent because for a lot of people who are poor and destitute, that might actually be a better alternative than their current life. So they need a new law to shame the offender and like not encourage copycats. They do eventually get this, but not soon enough. Because two days after Francis's sentence was commuted, so his sentence is commuted on July 1st, and then on July 3rd, 17-year-old John William Bean takes his chance at the Queen. However, his story's a little bit interesting. So he's a hunchback, and he possibly also suffered from dwarfism, and... After the fact, it was clear that he was just extremely tired of this very difficult life that he was living. The public at the time had been inundated with these portrayals of hunchbacks and dwarves as villains or pathetic creatures. There was Quasimodo from the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which had since been translated into English. There was a Dickens villain from the um, Curiosity Shop, I think. And then Punch himself, who's this 200-year-old king of British street performance. So Punch yeah. and Judy. Punch is a hunchback. And so the world is very happy to group John William Bean in with this lot of miscreants just based purely on the supposed moral failing of having a hunchback. So he had, in fact, run away from home a few weeks before, and his father had already circulated his description to the police. So... A couple weeks later, after this, he fires on the carriage containing the queen, her consort, and the king of the Belgians, her uncle Leopold. Um, However, not Francis, wow, John William Bean, (laughs) I'm confusing all my attackers. So Bean fires on the carriage, but his gun fails. A witness actually saw all of this go down and tried to turn Bean into the police, but Bean slips away and the witness is actually mistaken as her would-be assassin because he's (laughs) holding the gun. Um, However, eventually more witnesses, including members of his family, corroborate his tale that actually there's a hunchback attacker and he's released. And then what happens is this almost, in retrospect, comical but super sad epidemic of police profiling where there's a citywide search for bean which meant open season on london's hunchbacks like the jails just filled up with hunchbacks and dwarfs and i mean it sounds comical but it's obviously not however the description circulated by his father weeks before to the police actually led them to bean in fact he was just chilling at home (laughs) with his parents so officials are reluctant to charge bean with high treason because one His gun failed, so he didn't actually shoot at the queen. And also, they're certain that it's only going to incentivize imitators. Because also, this idea was percolating that, you know, Victoria's not the only monarch at this time facing attack, but her assailants are so far not very political, right? Like, they're just seeking notoriety. They're not tied to any greater political cause. They're boys, so why not treat them as such and then appeal to their sense of shame? So... Bean is actually tried, instead of on treason, he's tried on account of common assault, which is a misdemeanor, and he's then sentenced to 18 months of hard labor, which you can imagine was probably punishing enough for someone with his physical Mm. deformities. Yeah. Um, And a week later, Prime Minister Peel, who has since regained the prime ministry, um, has created the act providing for the further security and protection of Her Majesty's person to deal with the attempts not to kill the queen, but rather to disturb her and the public hmm. peace. Um, so this is explicitly calling out the fact that you do not need to attack the queen with a loaded gun. You could just point a gun at her and trip the law. Do you think law. that's on purpose? And offenders can... F- yes, because... Regardless of whether the guns are loaded or not, you know, there's powder in there, it goes off, nobody knows the difference. So they're disturbing her and thus the public peace. Um, And offenders can face up to seven years transportation, three years hard labor, or a public or private whipping. And that last one was essential to this idea that they wanted to shame people. So obviously transportation or the insane asylum isn't enough of a deterrent, but maybe whipping will be. (laughs) Yikes. Yeah. I was going to say, like, maybe they were, I guess it wouldn't really make sense because you wouldn't want to encourage public, you know, faux assassination attempts. But, you know, I'm wondering if they were sort of being like, well, it's fine if your gun's not loaded because then at least Victoria is not really in danger. 
Well, that's why it's not treason, but it's still a crime because... It's still crazy. They don't want people just going with unloaded guns and Mm. shooting them off, right? Like, that's just insanity, quite literally. (laughs) But, yeah, no, they've they've basically covered all their bases here. Or so far. Okay, so we're going to talk about the fourth attempt, which is a little interesting, I think, because there's a lot more historical context to it. So... If we think about the first three, Oxford, Francis, and Bean are all these disaffected boys who are just exercising their frustration, uh, going for fame, trying to get a cozy bed in an insane asylum, and they're using shooting at the queen as the way to do this. The fourth attempt is a little bit more political, in fact. So the next attack actually happens seven years later in 1849. So the first three attempts happen 1840 and then two in 1842. So they're fairly close together. She has a good seven years before the next one. And this longer gap could be explained by the new law that was made to deter attempts on her life. But also it can also be explained by the queen's change in behavior as she and Albert expand their family. And consequently, they spend less time in London. So they've purchased estates on the Isle of Wight and also Balmoral in Scotland. This is also an example of the times catching up with the monarchy. So steam engines, both on land and sea, allow Victoria to be the first monarch to reside so far from the capital. Like she can leave London and go far away because she can come back quickly. Because of this, her regular airings in her carriage from Buckingham Palace decrease dramatically over the years and thus decrease opportunities to kill her or pretend to kill her. Um, And even despite this, she's still extremely popular because there's also the concurrent rise of a cheap illustrated press, which means that she no longer has to go out among the people in order to be seen by them. They can just see an illustration. Modern times. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. very modern. Uh, And she and Albert, with their growing family, kind of spend the monarchy as this idea of the ideal family, Uh, but this doesn't make up for economic realities. So the decade of the 1840s is also known as the hungry 40s, which means that for many people, worst of all in Ireland during the potato famine, people are quite literally starving. Um, So the potato famine happens from 1945 to 49, where the Irish potato crop, which is a staple crop in Ireland, inexplicably contracts this fungus and fails and hmm. a million irish people actually starved to death during this time is is that when they all left yes so a million of them actually die of starvation even more actually just flee to either london or more commonly to the united states so the british government also ha- doesn't help matters they have this kind of laissez-faire response to the hunger insisting that it'll work itself out and in the meantime the irish pay for their own relief and also a lot of people are just kind of racist and assume that the irish are lazy and responsible for their own circumstances victoria did attempt to help she donated money to various charities and causes but she also she and albert are kind of of the opinion that the irish need to help themselves so it's not really a good luck for Victoria in this time. Um, hmm. So one... Isn't she... She's the Queen of Ireland, though? Technically. But I, okay. Ireland's not England. So, you know, those aren't right. her people. I mean, huh. it's racism. Like, there was this idea of the Irish, you know, being other and lazy and... Yeah. I mean, there. we don't have to get into the whole history of England's horrible relationship to Ireland because we'll talk a little more about it. One of these people, one of these Irishmen to emigrate to England during the famine is this man called William Hamilton. So he's poor, he's without work, he has no luck upon reaching English shores of improving his circumstances, and he comes to think that imprisonment might be a better alternative to his life. So on May 19th... I'm sensing a theme yes, here. Yes, aren't you? Yes. Mm. So in 1849, on May 19th, which is, by the way, the official Queen's birthday, he fires a powder-filled pistol at the Queen's carriage while she's out and about in London. Um, Kind of amazingly, the reaction to this is that they immediately stop the carriage and the Queen stands up, kind of going, what's happening? But luckily, this dumb behavior of giving a clearer target didn't result in anything. Hamilton doesn't fire again, and 
they just move on. But the crowd doesn't know that. So they just heard a gunshot and seen the queen's carriage stop and then move on. So they believe that the queen has been either hurt or killed. And so this mob converges on Hamilton. Um, Yeah. So the police get him away and... The public just results with their usual reaction of celebration and goodwill and, oh, thank God for the preservation of the monarchy. So Victoria's enjoying yet another bump in popularity. However, from the start, it's very clear to everyone that Hamilton had not really tried to murder Victoria. So he's the perfect guinea pig to be tried under this brand new law. Well, now it's not brand new, but this is the first time they've had to use it. So... Interestingly, the potential obvious political motive of his being Irish and disaffected doesn't really seem to have been considered. Everyone just kind of poo-poos that alternative and they're like, oh no, 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 he didn't mean anything. So while Hamilton awaits trial, Victoria and Albert, interestingly, are also formalizing plans for a long put-off trip to Ireland. Ironically. (laughs) So Hamilton's tried on June 14th and sentenced to seven years transportation. Um, The first five years actually of which he served in England in hard labor before shipping off to, you guessed it, Western Australia. (laughs) So as you do. Yes. If you're keeping track, three out of her four attackers are now in Australia. So on August 2nd, though, which is two months after this, Victoria and Albert arrive in Ireland where the queen is actually greeted with love and popularity. Unfortunately, a feeling she did not cultivate and ultimately did not last. At the time, the Irish people are not blaming her for their problems, but they will. So the fifth attempt. Now we're talking a year after Hamilton's attempt, maybe not quite a year. Um, This is in 1850. So in this one, now we've dealt with pistols so far. And this one, we have a disgruntled ex-military man who decides to use a stick. (laughs) So... The pistols aren't working, so why not dry stick? This man called Robert Pate, he's an ex-army officer. He's actually known to the queen and to other frequenters of the West End and the parks around there as this kind of natalie dressed dandy who marches around goose-stepping as if he's like a man possessed. I mean, he's a well-known public, I don't want to say public figure, but like public attraction i guess Uh, yeah maybe crazy person is not fair but well it might be fair so eccentric yeah we'll use eccentric in victoria's words he's that man who quote makes a point of bowing more frequently and lower to me than anyone else so she's encountered this man before however in june of 1850 one day he just ignores his normal routine and he stops and he's waiting the queen so her carriage stops just before entering the gate outside Cambridge House where she's visiting a relative. And Pate steps forward and raises his cane. Then he brings it down on the right side of her head. He bends her bonnet and audibly smacks her forehead. So he, what? he strikes the queen with his cane. He's immediately seized, obviously. And then the queen stands up announcing, I am not hurt. However, she was. She had a walnut-sized welt, and she was. he broke the skin, so she had a scar that lasted 10 years. Wow. Yeah. And it's interesting. So she always considered this attack to be the most outrageous one. So the most... Well, yeah. I mean, he hit her in the forehead with a cane. Right. I think the personal nature of it was just very disconcerting. <laughs> so she found it extremely insulting. And Yeah. I mean, he got close. Yeah. And so she asserts that at least these men who shot at her with a gun were more courageous. So she has no respect for Pate. <laughs> but... Which is hilarious because he got closest out of all of them. Which I think is why she considered him the worst. Like, she was so insulted by this. And as were those around her, like, he dared to lay hands on the queen. And so as for Pate, there's never a question that he struck the queen. Only this question of why he would do this. Like, was he legally insane at the time of attack? Um, however... Despite the fact that he's this eccentric figure that's marching around London, the prosecution successfully avoid focusing on the question of insanity, and the judge basically throws the book at him. Like, he sentences him to seven years transportation, which is the maximum sentence under this law, and Pate is sent off to Tasmania. Again. Again, yeah. Well, no. Not yeah. him. No, again. there's... Yeah, they're yeah. all sent to Tasmania, so... Gotcha. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, he's maybe not insane, but they are not going to stand for letting this man off with a lenient sentence after striking the queen with a cane. Although I do want to note that she shook it off fairly well. She actually went to the theater that same night. 
Well, I mean. She's nothing if not You can't, you can't miss the show. Yeah, stiff upper lip and all that. Yeah. Okay, so the sixth attempt is a little less oh my gosh. entertaining. So how many? We are at six. That was, that was five yeah. so far? Yeah. So we're at six. And this one, again, has a bit to do with the Irish, but also to this growing idea of republicanism. So republicanism is threatening the monarchy, and then you have this would-be Fenian supporter who essentially kills off that idea. So again, Victoria is going to benefit from an attempt on her life. This is 1870 we're talking about. So this is about 20 years after Pate struck her with a cane. A lot has happened in the meantime. So the economy has slumped since 1866. Unemployment is high. Um, The establishment in France of the Third French Republic overthrowing Emperor Napoleon has fed this movement of republicanism in Europe. And the feeling is also growing that the royal family is basically useless. A lot of this is fed by the queen's seclusion after Albert died in 1861. To be fair, she suffered from depression after this. She was in deep mourning, and she never really recovered from a nervous breakdown that she had after his death. But again, she's still queen, so the people are kind of like, hey, where'd you go? Hmm. Also, not helping matters, her eldest son, the Prince of Wales, Bertie, is hardly a figure that's inspiring confidence. Meanwhile, the Fenian movement is growing in both Ireland and America, and is in fact bolstered militarily by the training of the American Civil War. Um, it, what is the Fenian the, So the Fenian movement? movement is this Irish resistant movement that grew both in Ireland, but also in um, Irish emigrants to America. And during the 1860s, the American Civil War provided them with wonderfully convenient military training. So and what's their, what's their purpose? Irish independence. Got it. Yep. Okay. And this movement oh, is so this continues into the troubles and all of yes, that. Yes, yes, this is the start of the troubles, if you will, gotcha. or the start of the military angle of the troubles. Okay. Um, so it's actually a movement that's thought to pose a real threat to the queen, um, even though the threat abates after about 1867. But despite this abating of any overt threat to her. The result of this is the prisons at the time are full of Fenians, both in America and in England, and or maybe more in England. And no, it's Ireland and England. I'm sorry. And the movement for their amnesty is in full force by the end of 1871. So their threat might have died down, but they're basically clogging up all the prisons. Also, around this time in 1872, the Prince of Wales Uh, This is Birdie, who we just talked about wasn't exactly an inspiring public figure. Um, He grows ill with typhoid fever, um, which is actually what is thought to have killed his father. So after he recovers, Republican sentiment subsides even more because the English people having come close to losing their successor to the throne are like, maybe this isn't so bad. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) this guy's kind of okay. So... Um, This period of Thanksgiving celebrations occurs, and um, two days after one of such service celebrating his recovery, on February 29th, a 17-year-old of the name of Arthur O'Connor happens to get in the Queen's face and wave an unloaded pistol just after she arrives back at Buckingham Palace, and this time actually inside the palace gate. So this rattles everyone. And O'Connor, you know, he doesn't shoot anyone, but he's pointing a pistol at the queen and her ladies-in-waiting and her sons who are in the carriage with her. So everyone's a little like, what? But O'Connor, though he grew up his entire life in London, he felt himself to be passionately Irish and devoted to Irish freedom, despite probably never having actually met a Fenian. Um, He convinces himself that he's going to be the man to free the Fenians in prison, though, somehow going to achieve this by killing Queen Victoria. Although his attempt is, as I've just mentioned, was hardly an attempt on her life, um, as his gun was broken, but he did happen to confirm the queen's worst fears about both Fenians and the Irish. So maybe waving in, even if it's broken, don't wave a pistol in the queen's face to get her on your side. (laughs) Probably not a good idea. No, and it failed on so many levels. One, in that he 
didn't really do anything and also that this did nothing to make him a hero to the Irish. So Irish nationalists immediately dissociated themselves from him and Irish newspapers pointed out that O'Connor was not even truly Irish and that neither were his ancestors who had been English settlers in Ireland who changed their name from Connor to O'Connor. That's an epic, we don't know him. Exactly, they pulled a Mariah. So also weirdly, a lot of the Irish claims of innocence asserted that no Irish man would ever attack the queen, although Victoria herself noted that no one seemed to recollect William Hamilton and his attempt in 1849. So the press is so busy tripping over themselves to say this couldn't possibly be an Irishman that everybody kind of forgot she'd already been attacked by an Irishman 30 years before. So she was a little put out by that fact. So he was ultimately sentenced to 12 months imprisonment and a whipping. Um, And again, as per usual, Victoria's popularity recovered and republicanism was well and truly dead for the time. Um, I want to mention, though, that O'Connor actually made a second attempt or seemingly second attempt on her life after his release from prison and a short-lived move to Sydney, Australia. Um, In 1874, he was quietly arrested and removed with no press accounts of his second try. Hmm. But, yeah, he probably should have been kept further away from the queen. (laughs) So, okay, let's talk about someone actually insane. So this is the seventh attempt, if we're keeping track, on Victoria's life. And this is 10 years later in 1882. So by this time, Victoria has been queen basically forever. She's an institution. Most of her subjects have known no other monarch on the throne. So she's very popular and also seemingly just immovable. Alternately, this man, Roderick McLean, is a disgruntled, likely insane poet who is offended by Victoria's refusal to accept one of his poems that he sent to her. So don't disgruntle the artists. Yeah. So on the 25th of February, he arrives in Windsor where the queen is in residence. And a few days later, he goes to the rail station to wait for the queen to arrive from a short day trip to London. And then when the queen's leaving the station in her carriage, he takes aim at the carriage and shoots. So he's taken into custody. But unfortunately for him, this time a bullet is actually found. Uh-oh. So he's got bullets in his gun, and there's also one that they find in the dirt, which is determined to have passed behind the rear of her carriage. So um, nobody told him you aren't supposed to load the gun? I know, right? you think he would have asked these other guys. <sighs> but they're in Australia. How's he going to talk to them? So he's actually fired live ammunition at the Queen. This is a pretty big deal. However, he's also pretty clearly crazy. So he believed that God had spoke to him and the number four was like his number and the color blue was his color and all these people infringing upon his rights by wearing the color blue or using the number four or just literally driving him crazy. So yeah, he's, he's quite mentally ill and he is found not guilty by reason of insanity. But not because of his actual insanity, but because by 1882, as I mentioned, she's an institution in England and she's so popular that one must surely be mad to try and harm her. Um, There's also the benefit that an insanity verdict can guarantee indefinite imprisonment at the queen's pleasure, which it did, and also at her son and grandson's pleasure as well. Mm. (laughs) So uh, McLean is in prison for quite a long time. Um, However, Victoria is outraged at this verdict. You know, she had assumed that they were only going to use insanity if they had failed to convict him of high treason, which he was charged with, but they didn't even try. They just went immediately for this insanity verdict. And so she thought an insanity acquittal actually only proved to others that you could shoot at the queen and get away with it, even with live ammunition. Even though he's presumably getting locked up. Right. But again, not enough of a deterrent. Look at the ultimate, like, OG assassin, Oxford. He's still locked up, and everybody thinks his life is great. So ultimately, her displeasure at this verdict leads the government to enact something called the Trial of Lunatics Act. And now, this gets a little dodgy on the language. I didn't really understand all of this. But essentially, it removes an insanity verdict from Britain's legal process. But it changes the verdict to guilty but insane, which applies to all felonies, not just treason, which means that you're guilty on one hand, you are insane, 
but you are now morally responsible for your actions despite your insanity. Hmm. So they're not removing this idea of insanity. They're just removing the idea that insanity makes you unresponsible for your actions. Interesting. Is how I understood that. The use of the word insane quite through all of it through me, but you're a lawyer. You could tell me if I got that right. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't do it that way. No, and um, England actually doesn't do it that way anymore. That changed somewhere in the mid-20th century. Uh, but at the time, Victoria successfully eliminated the use of the insanity defense, uh, which she must have been frustrated with by this time. So, however, despite all the legal complications, she's extremely pleased by the expressions of loyalty after the attack. She's, she herself starts to note this pattern of popularity that these attacks bring on. In fact, writing to her eldest daughter saying, it is worth being shot at to see how much one is loved. <laughs> Only Victoria would say that. Yeah, I think she's putting a positive spin on this. Okay, so let's talk about the eighth attempt. Is this the eighth and final? This is the eighth and final and actually the attempt that never was. Um, Although, had it happened, would have been the most devastating attempt on her life and likely successful. Mm. So this one happens during her jubilee year when she's celebrating her golden jubilee, her 50 years on the throne. So for the last 19 years of her life, Victoria never had another attempt made on her life, at least not directly. Um, However, during this time, the threat of assassination only increases due to the lethal power of dynamite in the late 19th century and this idea among terrorist groups that monarchs and heads of state are suddenly legitimate political targets. So any idea that you just don't harm the monarch out of decency has gone out the window. And just a few examples of this. The first victim to really face the music, as it were, was Alexander II of Russia, who was, in fact, Victoria's son's Alfred's father-in-law. He was killed in 1881 by this organized band of nihilists calling themselves the People's Will. Um, And before that, his life had actually already been threatened about three times, but always by men with pistols. Um, The People's Will, however, they really like this newfangled dynamite, and they tried on four separate occasions to blow up the Tsar. Innocent bystanders and all, they didn't really care who got caught in the crossfire. Um, They finally succeeded when a man threw sticks of dynamite at the Tsar's feet, blowing his legs away and killing him. And this attack understandably unsettled Victoria greatly as she saw similarities with the Fenians and their own newfound love of dynamite and public terror bombings. Yeah, that's yikes. Yeah, so it's not men with pistols that might not work or empty powder. It's full-on bombs. Welcome to the modern era. Yeah, right. Yeah. So Alexander, too, gets the, the rough end of that stick <laughs> of dynamite. I was like, that's not funny, Allie. (laughs) I do want to mention that Alexander II was an autocrat, and so I think people generally understood why he was targeted, although we will see that that trend is not really a pattern. Um, Because the next person to be killed on July 2nd of 1881 is U.S. President James Garfield. Oh, I forgot about that. Yes. So I didn't include Lincoln in this list because I think his assassination was a little earlier than this and also clearly for political, different political reasons other than anarchy and what have you. Um, So Garfield is shot and killed. And then about 17 years later, Empress Elizabeth of Austria is fatally stabbed. I didn't know there were so many successful assassinations. Oh, well, there's more. So in 1900, King Umberto of Italy is killed with four bullets from a revolver. Um, His assassination actually inspired that of President William McKinley in 1901. Jeez. Yeah. And actually, on April 4th, 1900, Victoria's own son, Bertie, is shot at from six feet away while traveling through Belgium with his wife. So it seems that no monarch is safe from this, and not even monarchs or autocrats including democratically elected leaders as well. There's a seems to be an epidemic in the air. So in 1887, consequently, due to these initial attacks, increased security is proving its worth during Victoria's Golden Jubilee. So Metropolitan Police successfully thwart what could have been a very serious threat against the Queen because going back to this idea of dynamite, 
between 1883 and 1885, Irish American, well, they're called dynamitards. Okay. <laughs> I believe it just means they like using dynamite. <laughs> um, they've chosen targets of greater symbolic power. So targeted during this time are Whitehall and Victoria Railway Station, the London Underground, Scotland Yard, the Tower of London, and the House of Commons. So a lot of landmarks in London are being targeted by bombs. Um, However, this ceases a bit in 1885 when a small measure of Irish freedom seems possible to be achieved by parliamentary means. However, the government changes in 1886 and any hope of Irish freedom through acts of government goes out the window. And this group called, excuse me if I mispronounce this, I believe it's Clanagall. Okay. Sure. It's then the most popular group of militant Irish nationalists in the United States, interestingly, and they resolve to commence terror bombing to disrupt the Queen's Jubilee. Interestingly, that they come from the United States. So remember, during the potato famine, tons of Irish are immigrating to the U.S. So there's this groundswell of support for Irish liberation happening an ocean away. And now they're coming back to try to make it happen. So the most feared target is Westminster Abbey because on June 21st of 1887, which is Jubilee Day, Victoria, her children, her grandchildren, and much of European royalty are set to gather to celebrate her 50 years on the throne, which is by any measure a tempting target and a huge blow to monarchy if it were to succeed. The threat is very real, but it ultimately comes to nothing because this group of dynamitards, and I love that word. That is quite a name. (laughs) Yeah. They sailed to England in June of 1887, but the police know that they're coming because the plot is essentially an open secret in the U.S. since May of that year when the New York Times reports on it. And they report on it by this anonymous submission by an author who is actually part of an extensive spy network who's got an inside line to this group and knows what their plans are. So the police know that this is true and that it's going to happen and they're preparing. So by Jubilee Day, though, they've taken some steps to try to thwart these men as they're arriving either in France or in Europe or in England but they're uncertain how well they've foiled the plot. Um, In fact, the head detective on the case receives word during the ceremony that conspirators had succeeded in planting a bomb. So he's literally sitting in Westminster Abbey with his wife sweating bullets. So (laughs) unfortunate for him. However, the ceremony proceeds. There's no bomb. All threats either never came to be or were successfully thwarted. So they did their jobs. But had that happened, had they succeeded... Westminster Abbey could have blown up with all of European monarchy, and we might not be having this conversation. We we wouldn't... Oh, oh, okay. I was like, we're not related to monarchy. <laughs> Took me a second. We Took might not be talking about modern yeah, monarchy. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So that's the last attempt. Victoria dies a natural death on January 22nd, 1901. But I really wanted to talk about this aspect of her reign because... She had this lifelong cultivation of public will, um, which is a priority that she shows after each attack and also she gets in return from the public. And it set the precedent for what the royal family still does and still follows. So the royal weddings, the jubilees, the walkabouts and the openings of galleries and whatnot, their appearances on the royal balcony, which by the way, the balcony she and Albert commissioned to be built are all Victorian creations, which are meant to reinforce this idea of the bond between the monarch and the public, and then thus the importance of that bond to the legitimacy of the monarchy. So in a strange way, all of these attempts on Victoria's life helped to cement this idea, and we can still see it today. Interesting. But you could completely make the case that had these attempts at her life not been made, we might have a very different picture of her reign. Yeah, no, I agree. I apologize if that was very long, but unfortunately, it was eight people, not five. Who I didn't know there were so many. I thought, you know, I had read so much, if not all of the sourcing for this episode comes from this book called Shooting Victoria. And I had read it 
or begun to read it a couple years ago and I never finished it. And so I got it out from the library again like a month ago and I read the inside cover and I went, oh my God, eight. That's so funny. <laughs> I thought it was like five. Like, I, I thought it was no two. <laughs> no, so That's many. Crazy. And they're all kind of the same and kind of yeah. different. I mean... I think you can make the case that most of them were not serious attempts yeah, in her life. They were cries for help. But no one knew that at the time. They just free yeah, tickets exactly. to Australia. Cries for help. Pretty much. I mean, I didn't really want to get too much into the lives of the, her attackers, but a good number of them actually paroled and lived successful private lives in Australia. See? Other than O'Connor, who came back to try to kill her again. Well, but he was crazy. Yeah. I mean, basically the answer was, you know, they serve their debt and time and they were model citizens and the governors of Australia were like, fine, you can go about your life, but please do not ever return to the shores of England. <laughs> hmm. So. Wow. I guess it was just a hot time for assassinations in general. Well, it really was. And it's, you know, as you mentioned, you see the advent of the violent part of the troubles in Ireland and this directly builds into, you know, the troubles and you know ultimately Ireland splitting and you know you've got the Fenian Brotherhood and Clan Nagal probably morphing into the IRA and then all of Europe this is definitely the preceding alarm to World War One so she's at the cusp of what it time all. to be alive yeah or to live yes. through yes. successfully accidentally <laughs> um, okay so Next time, I believe we're going to be moving on from our actual queens and talking about our wannabes. Or we can call them queen consorts. Some of them are queen consorts. They all are. Actually, I correct myself. I was waiting for you to get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So we're going to be talking about Eleanor of yes. Aquitaine. Yes. Who is the daughter-in-law of Empress Matilda. Yes. And... Which, if you have not listened to that episode, I highly recommend that you do. It's a good idea, because we're going back to that time period. Um, as far as I know, she didn't have any assassination attempts. Although, that may not be true. That might not. I know she was. I know there were some kidnapping attempts. So, hmm. you know, we'll see. Yeah. Tune in next time to find out. Yeah. All right. Well, until then. Until then. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie, and me, Claire, and our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.